so the text before us, uh, again from Mark, Mark chapter 10, uh, starts out uh, with the reference to Jesus as a rabbi. And uh, that, I, I'm, I'm guessing you probably know, means teacher. And uh, it shows us that he came to undertake a teaching ministry. Uh, Mark 1 verse 14 tells us that now after Jesus was arrested, uh, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. But by telling us that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, the good news, Mark surely means uh, or, or does not mean to say that he neglected to preach the law of God which is what a rabbi did. In fact, Jesus spent much time preaching and teaching the law, as he does here in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. So take, for example, as we've heard, the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we, we tend to characterize the Sermon on the Mount by the tone of the Beatitudes that begin this sermon uh, from Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And, and these beatitudes, as they are called, these statements of blessing, these pronouncements of blessing, are rightly heard as gospel, as good news, as comfort for the soul. But even as Jesus pronounces these blessings upon the people, his teaching, even in the Beatitudes, I would point out, begins to take on the convicting character of the law as well. Uh, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, uh, the person with a healthy conscience is likely to say, uh, yes, uh, but have I been merciful enough to others? in order to be shown merciful, in order to be shown mercy. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. That's convicting, is it not? How can I, a sinner, be pure in heart before God? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, continues Jesus. But what hope do we have of being sons of God, given that our hearts are so given to quarreling and to bitterness instead of to making peace? There are times in, in Jesus' teaching when it's hard to decide if he's preaching law or gospel. Uh, and sometimes we hear the law as if it were gospel in order to escape the, the weight of sin's conviction upon, upon our hearts. Like, like when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And we presume to say, oh, yes, this is what I will do. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. Instead, we ought to recognize in that summary of the law just how weak we are and indeed how, fall, how far short we fall uh, in our lives. So Jesus was a teacher of the law. This is, this is the early point here. Uh, he made it very clear again in the Sermon on the Mount that he had not come to abolish even the least of God's commands, but to uphold and fulfill the whole law of God. And so it was that the Pharisees made a, a certain attempt to, to trap Jesus. 
to trap him into saying something that they could accuse him of. Uh, in Mark 10, verse 2, they, they came up in order to test him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And we just need to stop and, and think about this. The trap here is that if Jesus said, yes, divorce is lawful, well, he, he would be contradicting the law because nowhere in, in the law does God actually permit divorce. But if Jesus said, no, it is not lawful for a man to divorce his wife, then then there would be at least an apparent contradiction of the law because there is a certain reference in the law, a reference to a man giving his wife a certificate of divorce and, and sending her away. The way the law addresses divorce is much like we might address drinking and driving in our own culture. If we were to give a lecture on not drinking and driving, if we were to point out the great dangers of getting behind the wheel while under the influence of alcohol, if we were to talk of the gross irresponsibility of putting other people's lives in danger by drinking and driving, if we were to make it so abundantly clear that one must not drink and drive, one must never, ever get behind the wheel of the car if they've had too much to drink. Well, then one of our teenagers, for example, might come to us and say, oh, so you're saying that I can drink as long as I don't drive. You see, you see the logic. You see the, the problem. Well, this is how Israel had come to interpret the law when it comes to divorce. God had made certain stipulations in the law for how a divorced woman should be treated. And there is a reference. It's, it's not even really a, a command, but simply a reference to a man giving his wife a certificate of divorce. But the thing that is stipulated there is that if she was sent away in this way, and she marries someone else, she must not later come back to be taken as that man's wife once again. Another law said that if she was the daughter of a priest and she returned to live in her father's household, she was permitted to eat the, the sacred meat allotted to the priest and his family. So, so these are the kind of laws that God issued concerning women who were divorced by their husbands. But the thing that was quickly and conveniently overlooked was that a man could only send his wife away if she had come to the marriage without her virginity. And the, and the certificate of divorce was simply a means by which the woman could prove that she had been released from one marriage so that, she, so that someone else could be willing to take her as his wife. So despite the fact that God never allowed for divorce, except for marriage, marital unfaithfulness, as Jesus points out in Matthew 19, verse 6, which we did not read, uh, despite the lack of any clear allowance for divorce in the law, the people had taken the stipulations governing divorce as, as their right to end a marriage. And some even claimed that a man could send his 
wife away for any reason. It doesn't work that way, says Jesus. He first dodges their, their trap by answering the question with a question. Uh, he first asks in return, what did, what did Moses command you? And so he makes it clear that, that he did not come to abolish the law. Uh, he makes it clear that he is committed to upholding the whole law of God given through Moses, but that he was not willing to go one bit beyond the law either. And having heard the answer that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, well, Jesus then points out that this was only the means of governing a situation that was already outside of the will of God. Jesus says in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, God wrote you this commandment, or Moses wrote you this commandment. It also reminds me of uh, of the story. I don't know if this is helpful or not. You can tell me afterwards. It reminds me of the story of the monks who uh, who went to their abbot with a question. And uh, they asked him, uh, is it okay for us to pray while we are smoking? The abbot figured that they shouldn't be smoking anyhow. Uh, so if they add something good, like prayer, to time otherwise spent smoking, well, then all the better. Sure, you can pray while you're smoking. So the next day, the abbot walked into the chapel to find the prayer sitting, or, or the monks sitting in their prayer positions, smoking away. <laughs> you see, the, the what the monks were really asking is not whether they could add prayer uh, to time uh, spent smoking, but whether they could smoke during prayer time. They were just clever enough to ask the question in the right way in order to get the answer that they were hoping to hear. In giving laws that govern divorce, God was dealing with an already bad situation with his people. He was setting up laws that would apply whenever there was unfaithfulness between husband and wife. But his people took then from these laws the message that divorce was allowed by God. The law stipulated what should happen when a man sends his wife away, so let him send her away if she does not please him, was their conclusion. Because of your hardness of heart, said Jesus, Moses wrote you this command. And then he went on to teach them what God's word really teaches about marriage and divorce. Ironically, it, it was a sermon in three points. The first point was that at the beginning, God, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This was not so astounding, but Jesus is simply pointing out that a a man and a woman are made for each other. And it calls to mind the story of Adam and Eve. Adam was created first, but no suitable partner was found for him among all the creatures of God's, of God's uh, hand. So God took a rib from Adam, and uh, from that rib he created a woman. And uh, there is a sense from the text that when he saw her, she took his breath away. Uh, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
And so Paul writes these remarkable words, really remarkable words in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And that's that's immediately going to conflict with our culture, right? A wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But then he says this, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And in this, we hear an echo from the very beginning. Male and female, he created them, and the two shall become one flesh. But Jesus' second point was that God therefore calls for a man to be united to his wife. Jesus quotes in, in verse 7, uh, saying, um, or quotes in verse 7, saying, Therefore, that is, because woman was made for man and the two were put together to live as one flesh with each other. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Because they are of the same flesh. That's the point. No other flesh, no other creature was found to be a suitable partner with Adam. Therefore, God created woman out of man so that they would be of the same flesh eve being created out of adam's own body so they would come together to be one flesh in marriage the oneness of husband and wife is actually quite comprehensive uh, it doesn't completely erase their individuality we can we can just note that and appreciate that so the, the one fleshness of man and woman in marriage doesn't erase their individuality, but there is a, a comprehensive oneness between husband and wife. There is the oneness, of course, of physical intimacy in marriage. Uh, we might even be made to blush, right, by that, as we hear that the two shall become one flesh. We ought to understand what that's, what that's talking about. But there is also an emotional oneness, as well as a spiritual oneness, as husband and wife come together to be physically intimate and to live together and to share one life together in the bond of marriage. And that brings us to Jesus' third point, that God therefore prohibits the separation of husband and wife. And notice these points all build on each other. The words for this reason or therefore tie the, the first to the second point and the word therefore ties the second to the third point because God made them male and female for this reason. He calls for a man to be united to his wife so that the two become one flesh. And because he calls for a man to be united to his wife, therefore God prohibits that they should ever be separated. Here is here's one of the most well-known expressions of Jesus, right? Mark 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so the end result is that in God's eyes, there we could say there really is no such thing as divorce, but only adultery. 
When the disciples asked Jesus to explain this teaching further, he says this to them in verses 11 and 12, that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The, the end result of divorce in order to marry someone else is, is adultery, which means that God sees that that, that person is still married to his wife or her husband. And out of this teaching comes a, a, a threefold call of God, firstly, to those who are single. The call of God is to stay single, to, to stay single if you are able. First Corinthians 7, verse 8 says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And it says again in, in uh, 1 Corinthians seven twenty-eight, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you this, writes Paul. So I'm of the mind uh, that a single person ought to have thoroughly studied and prayed over 1 Corinthians 7 before deciding to get married. I've told my kids this. Um, I've told other singles in the church. If you're, before you ever get married, you should read, study, know thoroughly, and pray over 1 Corinthians 7. It's a chapter of the Bible that couldn't be more clear as it speaks. Number one, to those who are single. Number two, to those who want to get married. Number three, to those who are married. Speaks to all three categories, if you will. So read it, know it, and, and, and make some of the biggest decisions of your life on the basis of this instruction. And if you decide to get married, then the call of God is to enter marriage only as he defines marriage within his word. In our own day, we need to say this. Man and woman, one man, one woman, in lifelong union. Male and female coming together to be united with each other as one flesh, never to be separated as long as they both shall live. Secondly, to those who are married, the call of God is to stay married. And someone might say, but he leaves his dirty clothes everywhere. But she can't cook like my mother does. Uh, but the spark has gone out of our marriage. Even yet, the call of God is to stay married. And yet it's also the call of God that a husband should make it as easy as possible for his wife to stay married to him. And the wife should make it as easy as possible for her husband to stay married to her. Are you trying to make it easy for your spouse to be faithful? That's a good question. Are you trying to make it easy for your spouse to be faithful to you? Or are you taking advantage of your spouse's desire to be faithful to God by being faithful to you? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, love your husbands, even as the church is called to love Christ, her Savior. And finally, to those who are divorced, 
there may be need to confess the sin of divorce and to be reconciled to God through Christ in regards to that sin. Maybe it was many years ago, but you still haven't, maybe you still haven't dealt with that sin before God through Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe it wasn't mostly your fault, but maybe you still haven't confessed whatever fault was yours in the, in the divorce. And that's for you to decide as you ask God to convict you and to lead you to confess to him what needs to be confessed. So get with God in prayer. Confess what needs to be confessed of sin and claim God's grace in Jesus Christ. And indeed, here's the good news. Here's the, here's the gospel as it pertains to this sin, that there is grace in Jesus Christ for those who have been divorced. But let's make sure, let's make sure that we do not misread this statement of the gospel. Like Israel misread the law pertaining to divorce. Let us not mistake grace for permission. As if to hear the message that divorce is allowed by God. It's, it's not allowed by God. Because God created them, male and female. God called them to be united as husband and wife. As long as they both shall live. But how do we do it? Another great question. How do, how, how, how do we do this? It's almost impossible. Um, it's almost impossible for a young couple in love to imagine that the day will come when one or both of them will want to be out of the marriage. So how do we, how do we stick with it? How do we, how do we stay when we want to live? when we want to leave? Uh, how do we continue when we want to quit? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we do it? And the answer is that we must have the mind of Christ. And I know that's easy to say, we must have the mind of Christ, but it, it starts with a sermon like this, and it continues in our personal devotions at home, and it continues with a, a daily, every day reflection on what is coming, what is in store for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this really applies to all temptations, that the thing that will keep us uh, or, or that will bring us to say no to sin and yes to a suffering sacrificial obedience is by remembering what is in store for us. There might be the rare case of an entirely blissful marriage somewhere. There might be uh, that rare case, but the, the norm will always be disappointment. He is not the husband I thought he would be, says the wife. She doesn't understand marriage in the way I understand it, says the man. And that's a euphemism. <laughs> I'm sure you can figure it out. Um. I put it that way so that the kids won't ask their parents tonight, what, what did the pastor mean by that? But the call of God is to stay in that relationship, as disappointing as it may be, yet to stay with this hope, this assurance, this anticipation that marriage is merely a picture. As wonderful as marriage can be, and 
often is, yet even at its best, marriage is just a picture. Think about, uh, think about the wife of a soldier. Uh, once she has returned home, or once he has returned home, does she keep holding and gazing at the picture of her husband every night at bedtime? No, she enjoys having her husband at home. Well, so it will be in heaven. Marriage is just the picture of what eternity will be in heaven when the church, as the bride of Christ, is gathered and taken into perfect fellowship with Christ, her husband. Marriage is important here on earth. Marriage must be taken seriously. Great sacrifice must be made to maintain the picture. But it's just the picture. Can we admit that? Romantic love is one of the great idols of our day. As if, uh, as if it were the be-all and end-all of human life and relationships. But happily ever after only happens in heaven. Sorry to Hollywood. Sorry to our culture. Sorry to women looking to any mere man to be your your knight in shining armor. Sorry to the men looking for the wife who does it all. It doesn't happen in this life. It happens in heaven. And even the best marriage here on earth is yet only a picture of the bliss, the happily ever after in heaven between Christ and his bride, the church. So get married if you if you must. That's really what the Holy Spirit is teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. It's, it's not wrong to get married. And it's, very, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But don't get married expecting it to be your paradise. Because it might even bring you many days of trouble, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. But once you're married, certainly enjoy the blessings of marriage. But keep looking to Christ for your greatest pleasure and purpose. And with Christ as your greatest pleasure and purpose, then be true to your spouse on earth. Paint the best picture you can. Be true to your wife. Be faithful to your husband. But the best is yet to come. And the best is God's promise to you in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your teaching regarding marriage and divorce. Forgive us for our sins. Thank you for your faithfulness, which is our salvation. And as we have fallen short, may we confess our sins and know your forgiveness. And as we are perhaps married or would like to be, may we understand that indeed marriage is but the picture of the greater thing, the greater reality, the greater happily ever after, really the only happily ever after, which is promised us in your word as Christ brings us to himself in heaven 
we um, we we look forward to that day. We long for it, and uh, may marriage now be understood as the picture of uh, of that great day. We ask and pray in your name. Amen.